This is the theme to Gary show, the opening theme to Gary show. Gary called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? The opening theme to the Gary Shandling show. How'd you like that intro? Huh? It takes you back a minute, doesn't it now? In regard to in regard to all things 80s, was that 90s, 80s, late 80s? Yeah, late 80s. The Gary Shandling Show. Good stuff. As I'm stumbling through here on the cold floor of our little abode, propped up here, looking above the rooftops, over the rooftops of Old Town. I feel like Bill Murray at the beginning of Meatballs, or he just kind of stumbles all you see is uh, you get a shot from the feet up as he's as he's traversing his way across a cold wood floor cold canadian summer camp wood floor scrambling for his little pa system to wake up the campers at camp at camp what was the name of the camp it wasn't mohawk that was the rival camp north star that's what it was, Camp North Stars. He put on his little space cap and uh, turned on the PA. I started making coffee over the PA. Uh, it's gonna been a slow. It's been a slow morning. It's very, very, very similar to the way David Goggins describes staring at his running shoes for a half hour. I stare at those, I stare at those motherfuckers for half an hour. Sometimes before I go out for a run. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. It's all true. But if you've seen Meatballs, you know what I'm talking about. Which is uh, fitting because I was listening to, it's been a weird, it's been a weird little stretch the last uh, couple weeks here um we've we've been forced to stare at death in the face quite routinely and uh one such one such milestone is uh the director the late director Ivan Reitman passing away mid February who who in fact directed meatballs trying trying um Trying in almost in vain to coerce Bill Murray into this role, tell, asking him. I mean, he was the only one that didn't. You know, everyone else at that time had already gone on to do Animal House, John Belushi, and and uh, all the National Lampoon writers putting together this epic epic movie that was. I didn't realize it was uh, produced as well with Ivan Reitman. I thought it was all John Landis, and uh, but no. Uh, what the the backstory was quite funny. I was listening to Mark Marin, an old interview from 2014, and Ivan Reitman was, uh, yeah, pretty much a kind of a spearhead in putting putting all that together, and then brought in John Landis. Which was uh, really fascinating because he was, boy, Ivan Reitman was a really, uh, God, he just seemed to be the, 
kind of at the epicenter of comedy, this stage in 79. And uh, he'd been working with uh, all these great sketch comedians, these improv artists like John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, um, even working with pre- uh, you know, prior to all their big, their big, uh, debuts, their big, uh, introduction to the, to, uh, kind of there's, there's, right before they all hit their stride, all these greats like, uh, Gilda Radner, um, you hung out with, uh, David Cronenberg was one. They're all can all these Canadians. Well, Gil, I don't think Gilda was, but um, but Ivan Reitman was a Canadian by way of Czechoslovakia. I didn't realize this, but he had to he had to uh, he was a refugee um, back in the uh, let's see late f- no early fifties. Yeah, early fifties. They defected out of Czechoslovakia. Um, before it was broken up and migrated to Canada and then um, just be, just just uh, had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and but but ultimately wanted to be a, like uh, in the arts but but more the music side and then became I don't know. He just had his finger on the pulse of the beginnings of some great comedy. Um, Worked with a lot of the SCTV crowd, John Candy, uh, Joe Flaherty. You know, these guys that were... uh, Harold Ramis. You know, all these early... I mean, these were like huge, huge names. I mean, Harold Ramis, the guy that went on to... Ultimately, he directed uh, Caddyshack, helped write and direct Caddyshack. Um, he was another kind of a fallout from the ones that didn't get cast in Animal House. Bill Murray being the other. <clears throat> Dan Aykroyd turned down the D-Day character. Uh, I can't remember why. I don't know. You know, what's funny is like these guys all just were turning down opportunities because they were, I don't know, I think they were more interested in like doing some more theater, more improv, more sketch comedy. Uh, Saturday Night Live had just kind of, had just kind of broken through. So this was 75, 76. And then Animal House came out and made John Belushi a huge star. Then Blues Brothers came out. They kind of riffed on that whole sketch. What a huge... Everybody was in that one. I mean, literally. Blues Brothers was almost indefinable. Is it a comedy? Is it a musical? Uh, is it some kind of... Some kind of strange homage to soul music, blues... It's got John Lee Hooker, it's got James Brown, it's got Aretha Franklin, it's got Steve Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, uh, Steven Spielberg's in it, he plays a clerk, Uh, Frank Oz, he's the one in the beginning that gives John Belushi his stuff when he gets 
released from Joliet. I mean, just land a huge John Candy's in it. It's huge, huge. But uh, yeah, but then Ivan Reitman just kind of all of a sudden, you know, you just it's weird. This guy's just kind of been a mainstay forever. I mean, he did. So he had his hand in Animal House. Then he did. Um, what did he do after that? Uh, well, he did Meatballs. Then he did Stripes, like I was talking about last episode. I mean, Stripes, Jesus, it's huge, huge, and another great cast. Again, John Candy, Bill Murray, um, Warren Oates. <laughs> it's so wild. It's so wild. Harold Ramis. Classic, classic. Had a huge impact. I mean, I remember going. I remember going up to summer camp. Sly Park, just up the 50 here, about 30 minutes from where I'm at right now, and when we had to put on some, we had to put on some ridiculous sketch at the end of the week, and one of the neighboring, one of the neighboring troops, or uh, whatever you call them, units or groups in the, uh, in the camp did kind of spin off on the on the whole stripes thing where they came out in formation and did a little uh, did, a, did a little uh, marching in place type formation with a little bit of the the uh, singing and this was God this was well that movie came out in 82 that was 11. So, and that was a raunchy movie. I don't know if all these kids should have been watching that, but <laughs> but nevertheless, it seemed to work. I don't know. And uh, but that was huge. That was a huge movie. And then, I mean, it's all, it all goes from meatballs. I mean, just as a director, it goes from meatballs. Made about thirty million. Of 1980 money, 79, 80 money. Then he goes to Stripes, makes about 82 million. Is that right? No, 60 million. 60, 70, I don't know. Then, 84 comes out with Ghostbusters. I mean, that was huge. That was like 280 million of 1984 money. Again, Bill Murray turns it down. Well, they didn't want... Well, originally it was cast as... Uh, John Belushi was supposed to have Bill Murray's part. And uh, Dan Aykroyd wrote it. He wrote the script with... Uh, I think he wrote it with Harold Ramis. But it was supposed to be some kind of like alien thing with this elaborate like special effects, which it was. But it was more like all kinds of other variables and other factors and other... Not just ghosts and things, but they're fighting aliens and things like that. But anyway, it got pared down and distilled into what we were presented with in '84, and it just became. I think at the time it was the biggest comedy of all time. I mean, two hundred eighty million dollars in 1984 is huge. I mean, it just hit the mark on every, on every, in every way, and so. Ivan Reitman was just, he could do, could do no wrong. 
stuff after I don't know. He did Twins with Arnold and Danny DeVito, which has its has its merits. <laughs> but then he did, he did like Legal Eagles with Robert Redford, Deborah Winger. I don't know. I don't know if people got that. I don't know. Whatever. But but he kind of when he when he died, it was kind of like what like. He can't be that old. He can't be that old. He was like 76. It's fairly... I mean, it's not young. But it's like... That's... Uh, I don't know. You just... You get to... You get to... I guess my point is you get to... You get to where you don't think that people... You get stuck in time. You think things are going to be kind of static. Like things are going to be um, the way they are forever. That's my underlying point. My underlying point is that... And uh, you don't think people are going to leave. You don't think things are going to change. For example, I was told, my buddy Mike called me. This was a few weeks back. He's like, uh, this is just the weekly, the weekly chat. And I'm, I decided I was going to ask him one of the questions from that 36-question list that I'd bounced off my lady for compatibility for uh, 36 questions that'll lead to love but I decided the first uh, question was the most interesting who would you have dinner with if you could have dinner with anybody and it I guess appropriately enough uh, so Mikey uh, instead of like a celebrity or historical figure or whatever he chose a friend of his that he it was his best friend from like second grade, which I thought was very interesting, very telling. And so that was on a Friday that he called me, and then I think the following Monday or Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, the following week, sometime midweek, he calls and said, uh, "Hey, that you know that friend I was telling you about." He just passed away. And I'm like, what? Like, what was this? That's weird. And so it's kind of, I don't know. It it seemed to me that it's not out of the realm of possibility, but also the mere fact that you're getting older, man. You're getting older. Time marches on. Dun, 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 dun. Um, so, without getting too dark on this theme here, of course, I was kind of going through all these, like I say, all these recent. Uh, well, I guess when I was watching Mark Marin, I was doing this. He was watching, uh, or he was doing his stand-up. I was watching some of that. And so then I started listening. I got back into the fold of listening to some of his old interviews. And what he does is, like, when some of these performers, when they uh, when they pass away, <clears throat> he does a rebroadcast of the interviews that he did with them. And uh, so this last Friday, so a few days ago, last week, I was listening to uh, just a mashup of some things. And he had... And when he has, he does this thing where he kind of combines uh, 
he kind of combines um, a short interview with somebody that fold that that uh, overlaps into a longer interview with somebody else, and uh, he did one with um, Mac DeMarco, which I I found interesting because I don't know anything about this guy, and he puts out this kind of interesting music and. Uh, he doesn't really pay too much attention to the demographics. He just kind of plays what he wants to play, and I found that kind of refreshing and interesting. But then, part uh, the second part of that interview was with uh, uh, what's his name, Mark uh, Lanigan from uh, Screaming Trees, who I I really know little to nothing about, and uh, you know even vaguely just kind of recall the name of the band um, being part of kind of kind of like grunge era. Type, but more so like the whole Pacific Northwest because he came, he was born in, uh, or he's come, he's from a town in between Spokane and Seattle, kind of dead center of uh, Washington, kind of real, you know, typical Pacific Northwest kind of blue collar log in town type stuff, and he, um, his parents were teachers, so he came from kind of a I don't know, somewhat educated, kind of a, you know, not a, not a, uh, not a blue collar oriented type stance in life, you know, but, uh, but by the sounds of it, he kind of, he was kind of, he was kind of an awkward up, you know, um, upbringing. He wasn't, um, he was kind of, uh, like you do if you're just, you feel like you're kind of a, I don't know, a bit different than the others. He kind of tend to migrate towards the comic book shops and, you know, and he one day was down there and, and uh, he, they were the, the owner. There's always like that comic book shop owner, right? The guy, that, like the Simpsons character that kind of knows about all these obscure bands and these strange acts and is willing to tell anybody about them if they want to listen <laughs> usually they've usually just got done wolfing down about three frozen burritos and some nachos or something and they're kind of slightly kind of out of shape with a straggly ponytail but uh, but uh i'm pontificating but but the reality is this guy he was he uh Mark Lanigan was in this comic book store, and the guy was doing these returns. And he returns like, like a, like when I was working at Tower Books, they, all the magazine sections. Like when you return them, you cut off a portion of the magazine, so you didn't get. So the 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 vendor got back returns, but they were uh, unsellable. So he was he found some of these returns. He's, there's one with the Iggy Pop on the front. He's like, who's this guy? And that was kind of the beginning of all, all that. He started a band, and a, uh, I don't know, it's something very, I'm just fundamentally curious about, right? So, but this was, uh, so Mark Lanigan, who evidently has a, I, I wish I knew more about him, but evidently he was a phenomenal act. And I even remember seeing this guy like on a episode of uh, No Reser- I think it was No Reservations, oddly enough with Bourdain and making doing a little expose a little portion of the broadcast where he him and Lanigan were sitting in a bar in Seattle talking about 
um, gentrification and the new, you know, the young urban professional movement that was kind of taking over and sucking the life out of, you know, the character of the city or the, you know, same old story. So it seemed fitting that, you know, we, we lost, we lose Bourdain in 2018. Then this guy Lanigan, he, he passed away a couple weeks ago as well. And he was only 53. You know, just like Mike's buddy, or he, he was our age, had to have been our age, 50, 50, 51. So all these people just dropping off, like, Jesus. And it just seems to be, uh, I don't know, it seems to be a theme going on here, <laughs> sadly. But the theme is, uh, not old age, but just the notion that time does. Time keeps marching on. Doesn't want to stop. And I know, I mean, I, sh- I know that better than anybody. Although I keep, I keep myself, my mind in a free floating formation of static stasis that I just I feel like I'm still my my mind is in my head I'm 29 in my head I haven't even hit my 30s like what am I going to do when I grow up what am I going to be you know that's where I'm at when in reality you know I'm a decade away from 60 that that seems old but I don't think it's old it doesn't feel old I mean, I'm talking. I mean, I'm I'm listening to guys like I'm listening to guys like Mark Marin, who's doing it, you know, five years in advance of me. He's five. He's got to be five years older than me. Five, six years older than me. I mean, he's knocking on the door at sixty. All these guys, all these podcasts, all these guys have been around since the '80s. You know, when you're watching them in comedy clubs back in the day, back before they were anything like. When I was watching Ellen DeGeneres when she was just a stand-up act. And uh, I thought she was really, out of all the females, like she was the funniest. Like she really stood out. Like something about her timing, her delivery was really unique. And then she, but this was in the 80s. It's the 80s. I mean, there's a big chronological mental leap that takes you, like when you think, when you say the 80s, you're like, wow, the 80s, Jesus, but. Yeah, that was a while back. It doesn't seem... I, mean, I think that's the only era now that you look back and you go, well, it seems like it's a while ago. But the 90s are like... The 90s were only a decade ago, right? The 90s were only 10 years ago. 91, that was like 12 years ago, right? But the 80s were a long time ago. And it's a weird, weird way to grapple with time and chronology in your head, you know? But, but as you climb the tiers of age and wisdom or lack thereof, you start to you start to get faced with some really interesting um, scenarios. You start thinking like, yeah, well, ninety one wasn't twelve years ago, you dumb fuck. Like, my God. So, I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, so Lanigan, so he's gone. Bourdain's gone. Ivan Reitman's gone. So all these people are gone. They're gone. You know? And 
it's kind of disorienting. It's kind of, it's kind of like, how could they go? How how could they have gone so young, right? <laughs> but it's, I guess the, the way to equate it would be say, like when I was um, living, I was living in a, uh, I was living in a hotel in Las Vegas, which I don't recommend to anyone. You really, uh, this was back in 90, 98. I'd gone out there. I'd had a, I was living in, well, I was in San Diego. I had a place in San Diego. And, uh, but there was this company I was working for. I had no work. So they sent us to, to Las Vegas. And um, just in the meantime, to kind of stay busy, it was, it was a cabinet gig. And we were out there, me and my buddy Bob. And, uh, so I was um, just running amok in Las Vegas at the age of 27, just like where nobody should, you, I don't know. I mean, you should, it's kind of a rite of passage, you guys. I mean, that's, it's a very cautionary tale. It's just, just, let's just put it that way, okay? Because the first, the first 25 minutes I was there, I lost all my money on, uh, gambling and in clubs and uh, and just living and just uh, being in Vegas right so they just kind of siphon your money out the minute you get there but nevertheless I still I was out there for a couple uh, probably a couple months yeah and then so at that time this was this is from March, about uh, the end of March through April into the beginning of May, and then, and then, uh, then my grandmother had passed away, and uh, this was May. Well, I want to say it's May fifteenth. She she passed away the fourteenth, the fourteenth or the fifteenth, because Frank Sinatra passed away the next day, which was that was a cultural kind of weird seismic shift of sorts because I found myself in Las Vegas, which is kind of like, you know, aside from say like Atlantic city or some, you know, Hoboken, New Jersey or some, some outpost that would, that you would think of when you think of Frank Sinatra, Vegas has to be the top two or three. And so they did a whole, they, sh- they killed all the lights in the whole town, in the strip, kind of at a, as a, uh, you know, moment of silence type situation, which, which was fascinating, but, but my, my grandmother, she had, uh, no, she, no, she, she passed out, she passed the day after, that's right, she outlasted Sinatra by a day, that's what it was. I'd mentioned that I'd, I was asked to speak at the funeral at the service, and I had made a point of saying she'd outlast Frank Sinatra. That was so, something pretty, you know, that's hard to do. It's not an easy feat. So, but so I had uh, all I had in my name after I'd kind of bottomed out and pissed all my money away on strip clubs and uh, like I was. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird stretch, man. 
Remember when you're 27, you're broke, you're living in a hotel. You shouldn't be living in a hotel in Las Vegas, for one, because you're just, you're, you're that close to just, like, like, one thing I understood, one thing I found out in Las Vegas is when you stay, when you're down in Las Vegas, you stay down. Like, there's parts of that town that uh, are not pretty, not pretty. I literally, when I was doing cabinets out there, I saw there was a, uh, a huge white Eldorado, I think it was an Eldorado Cadillac, like 78, 79, like the big whale, big mother. I think and it might have been a convertible. I yeah, had to be, I think it was a convertible. And it was, uh, we were in this kind of mm, residential alleyway, which was, which was part dirt, like the back alleyway, part dirt. And they were putting in these apartments that we were doing. And this, Cadillac was up on blocks, but it also had a trailer. It also, well, it had a trailer hitch and then a trailer attached to it that was also up on blocks. So that's what happens when you're down in Vegas. You, when you're down in Vegas, you stay down. Um, yeah, it ain't pretty. So as an indicator, that just was... That was a that was like a uh, what do you call it an albatross like a sign you know like a dead albatross like don't 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 go down that road and uh, but that's what that town does you chews you up and spits you out and when I hit bottom I was like well I got a roof over my head and I got a vehicle and that's it and I mean I literally I had a tank of gas I had the tools to get my job done and that was it so during the day I would go. Like, uh, you know, you could have, uh, I think the hotel room had coffee. So I took care of that, took care of that. But in the afternoon for lunch, I would just go to Safeway. I'd just walk in the store and just start eating off the shelf. You know, I'd eat half a bag of this or half a container of that. Just jam it back up on the shelf. Kind of very much so like in the John Belushi where he was going through the cafeteria line in Animal House. Very, very similar. You know, jamming a couple of things in your pocket. Taking a huge bite of some dessert. (laughs) Cracking open a soda. Chugging about three quarters of that. And then politely putting it back on the shelf and walking out. Bob's your uncle, right? And then for dinner, I would go out to, I would kind of go out on the outskirts of town. I would go on the edge, out on the fringes there, these kind of mid-level casinos. You don't want to, you don't want to go down the strip. The strip's too vibrant. It's too, there's too much life. There's too much, uh, there's too much going on. So you go out to the outskirts, but you go to the one that's kind of mid-level. Not, not a big name casino, but like one that's, looks like it's doing fairly well, but not great. Then you go in. You find the uh, either a buffet or a sit-down restaurant, but you make sure that there's uh, that the available restrooms are out on the casino floor, not within the establishment itself. It's built into the casino. So then you go and you order a meal. You you know you 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 get your you know get your grub on, <clears throat> get that food going. Eat, tea, uh, eat, eat what you can. You know, do some real serious carbo loading, and then you politely ask the 
server, where is the, where are your restrooms by chance? And then they go, oh, okay, well, you got to go out the main entrance there. Then you go down past the slot machines, past the, you'll see it on, you see it on the right. If you go down uh, right before the, um, right before the main entrance to the casino. Oh, thank you. Okay, got it. And then walk out the front and you're gone. And that's how you survive in Vegas. But, <clears throat> but when my grandmother passed away, I had a credit card. And on that credit card, I think I had, um, I think it was like a three or $400 credit card was all I had. Um, and of that 300 I think I had charged about $484. So I was, somehow, I don't know what happened. Much like this phone that I that I use, it's like it's like a sixty-four gigabyte capacity. I've got like seventy-eight. I know I got seventy-eight gigs just crammed in there somehow, just wedged in there, just packed into each corner of this thing. So I, uh, so I wasn't gonna take my pick. So I had to go up to, I had to go to Yuba City. Yeah, Yuba City, north of Sacramento. And, um, so I needed a V, I needed something that was, I, I couldn't take my pickup. My pickup wasn't, uh, I think because Bob needed the pickup because he was, he was out of commission. His truck was out of commission or something. I can't, we were down to one pickup and so I was going to rent a car. So I went over and I put the credit card down and by some divine intervention, I somehow, they were able to secure a car for me. And so I hopped into that bad boy, and I started, I just drove north. I just went up to 95, cut across the Death Valley, drove through a sandstorm, and came out onto, um, or is that, that's when I picked up the 95 out of Death, out of Death Valley. It was, about, it was like 90 degrees. It's like 90 degrees when I left Vegas. It was just sweltness, sweltering. I mean, this is this is May, Las Vegas, dry. You know, not the peak heat, but it was very, very temperate. Then I made my way through a sandstorm in Death Valley. I came out uh, just on the other side of Bakersfield, and I went up the backside of the Sierras. I don't know, for some reason I just felt like this was the way to go. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I guess I was going to go over like, uh, you know, this was going to save me some time. I don't know what I was. So I'm going up the backs. I'm going up through like Bishop, Mono County. And I'm thinking I'm going to cut over on one of these passes, like the 140, 120, go through Yosemite. But they're all still closed from the winter. And so I made, I had to go all the way up, uh, by the time it's raining, no, it's rain. Er, it's cold. I had to go all the way up into uh, just before Reno, like Carson City, and cut over to the 88, I believe. Yeah, I think I picked up the 88. When I got into Reno, it was snowing up over the pass. Then I came down, came down off the 80, and the snow turned to rain. I, I mean, I, I, I experienced every conceivable weather pattern that existed right and I got to got to my grandmother's service funeral uh, 
and it was it just seemed like well I mean I'm 27 like all your relatives are there all your cousins well most of them a good portion of them aunts and uncles those suspected of being aunts and uncles people that call aunts that weren't my aunt you know that whole group you know you're there in town you're bumping into people you're you know kind of catching up and uh, just taking it all in. I mean, just people, every, my my one cousin, the one cut, co- my, I guess the most, uh, I don't know, the uh, most compatible cousin, one of the most compatible cousins I have is the one that's living in Brooklyn now, who's, uh, he's about a year older than me, a year or two older than me. It's the one I used to play superheroes and stuff with when you're young and all that crap. And he's a teacher now out in, out in New York and Brooklyn. He's a real big city guy. And he was living, uh, where was he living? I think he was in the Bay Area at the time. He's one of those guys. He's just a city guy. He's into, the, he would know everything about Mark Lanigan. He would know everything. He would know every, every move that Mark Lanigan ever made. This is one of those guys, you know, one of these guys that talks about, you know, pavement. What a, you know, what type of band pavement was. You know, bands that, you know, Houndmouth. They're so good, man. You haven't even heard of them, man. They don't want to be heard from. They don't want to be heard from, man. You know, one of those. And uh, which I always thought was unique and interesting. But I couldn't really appreciate it at the time. But he was one, he was really kind of my, like, anyway, when we got drunk on Budweiser after I spoke at the service. But everybody, everybody was there. It was huge, you know. Um, big gathering, you know, the, the, you're in that, you're in that, you're in the wheelhouse of your family, you know, when, when everybody was still kind of vibrant, and, you know, people were still kind of in the paces of their, their day to day, it was like a real, you know, a real, a real swath of life, the swath of life, you know, where you got to see everybody you saw. You just remember, oh, there's so and so. There's my uncle. There's this cousin, cousin Richie. There's you know, oh, there's aunt, and uh, she's not your aunt. I know, but that's what I. I don't know why. Why do I call her that? I don't know. She just is. She's not though. But it's it's all good. All these cousins you haven't seen forever. They're just like, they're all chubby. They're like, how'd you get so chubby? All this shit, right? Just, but it was. It was a good time. It was a good time despite the situation. And then I made my way back. Drove back to Las Vegas. And uh, carried on with my... I made, it out of, I made it out of Vegas. But just by the skin of my teeth. I was just... I'd burned most of the locals. And, uh, you know, that's a town after about three days. You just want to shower. You just want you just feel gross. But I was there for two months. I had to go back to San Diego just kind of pick up the pieces <laughs> so <laughs> so then so it's just it it there was so there's that era there's an era of time where everyone you know when i didn't nobody likes going to funerals i think funerals seem to be some something of uh, they can be social you know they can be they can be you know, there are different things to different people. There are different, there are different occasions and different to different cultures and different settings to different 
families, different heritages. But ours has always been kind of a mix of blue collar, gregarious, drunk. Uh, you know, well, up in Yuba City, they're all duck hunters and, you know, just, just blue collar types, just really, you know, farm more, you know, these guys were farmers, these guys were, um, good, you know, it's just that group, that people, those people, you know, it's a lively crowd. And, uh, so whenever you, Whenever you get together for some, even weddings, but not 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 as much it seems. But funerals, you know, I don't know. It seems like it was always a gathering. It was definitely always a gathering. And then, so years later, so that was ninety eight, and then so two thousand eighteen. So all uh, twenty, yeah, twenty years later in June, my grandfather passed away. Um, her husband, obviously, who, which was, uh, you know, it was interesting. Like, he, he was, that's my grandfather for you, you know. He, he was, they were together, I mean, forever. And he was always kind of like, uh, I don't whatever I'd go visit. Like, I, my mom would put me on a Greyhound bus. I was like nine years old. Take me to downtown Sacramento, put me on a bus and bust my ass up there to hang out with them for a couple weeks over the summer. And then my grandfather would be, <laughs> he just wanted to sit there and watch All in the Family or whatever the occasion was. And my grandmother would just be like, Willard, you dumb son of a bitch, make your grandson a sandwich. You know, she'd just be shouting obscenities at him. Willard, you dumb son of a bitch, get out there and <laughs> get that for your grandson. Grandma, do you do you love Grandpa? Oh, I worship the ground he walks on. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that was a relationship, you know. So, but she was she was she was an OG. Like she was like I remember when I was hanging out up there for a couple weeks, learning how to ride wheelies and shit. She was still working, and she came home from work. I during the afternoon I had been. Home by myself. Oddly enough, just left left there to my own devices. Um, some Jehovah Witness ladies came by and knocked on the door and gave me some one of their pamphlets, you know, about the Watchtower and all that shit. And I showed I showed my grandmother when she got home. She's like, "Where'd you get this?" Like, oh, these two ladies. Oh, and those two ladies came back, knocked on the door for this, for round two. Oh. Oh my God. My grandmother just ripped them a new one. She was definitely just hardcore. You just don't fuck with her. You just don't fuck with her. That's all. My grandfather was no better, but he, so he, he, um, he made it another 20 years after her. But 20 years is a long time. And so 20 years does a lot to you. Well, so. Now I'm 47. And uh, well, my grandfather, he had that bloodline. You know, I don't know. There's something about the, like, my, my grandfather's side, see, they're almost indestructible. My great-grandfather, he, he passed away at 49 from a heart attack. But aside from that, everyone, well, it was mostly on 
his wife's side, my great-grandmother's side, they all left to be like late 80s. My grandfather, early 90s, 92. Um, so he, um, yeah, so he was about, yeah, he was like 92 when he was, when he, when he, when he, I mean, I, he got to the point where I was feeling old, okay? Not so much old, but I knew like, okay, damn, like, it'd be weird to have a 47-year-old kid, right? <laughs> it's just strange to think about, like, I talk to my mom, I call my mom on Fridays, I'm like, isn't it weird to have a 50-year-old son or child? That make any sense to you? That's, but the point is, for when he passed away, so we now I had to make the pilgrimage back up to Yuba City, and we went up there, and now I'm 47, and I get up there, I'm, and I'm in in my head, in my headspace. I'm thinking, oh, all these people, oh, all these people are gonna be there. I'm gonna see all this, you know. It's always kind of a sobering reminder of the fact that, again, time marches on. Time marches on. The people are just going to be, all these people that you saw 20 years are going to be there. They're going to look like, like they went through the makeup department of some Hollywood film, you know, where they've added like jowls and wrinkles and weight and gray hair. But I get up there and uh, I'm like, well, where, where is everybody? You know, and it was a lot. It was it was a lot similar to my, um, not my grand, not, not his wife, but my other my. My other grandmother. On my dad's side. It's kind of the same deal when she passed. She, that was December of uh, two thousand fifteen. That's about right. So, so I would be 44, yeah. So a few years, yeah, a few years prior to that. The same deal, back up Yuba City. That's where we all come. We're all from Yuba City, yeah, whether you like it or not. I mean, it just, it's not, it's nothing I'm very proud of, okay? It's just, but, because uh, that's, Yuba City is the town that time forgot, okay? It's kind of, it actually is, is doing its part to go, backwards in time my uncle by marriage was the mayor up there in 84 when it was deemed the worst city in the u.s so we got that going for us which is nice and but wait so subsequent now so back to the future fast forward we get up there and it's just a it's a handful of people it's like it's a small it's like the first it's like the first group that uh, got on that bus when before the whole river dance craze started. You know that initial group that just, you know, ultimately would snowball into something big. But this wasn't a snowball. This was nowhere near. This was, this was it. This was a handful of people, like your immediate uncle, or an immediate parent. You know, sibling, cousin, not too many. And you're just wondering, like, where did everybody go? And you expect, like, that you just get used to it when you're, you know, when you're, you know, when you're really young and you gotta go to these functions and everybody. It's huge. It's it just seems like there's 
it seems like the Pope's in town. It seems like, it seems like, you know, this is some kind of event, you know? And now, as you get older, it's just like, it's quite, well, it's quite the opposite. If you outlast everybody, if you've managed to outlast everybody, it seems to be fewer and fewer people who kind of, to kind of, uh, there's fewer and fewer people to kind of, hmm, to kind of mark the, mark the, uh, mark the event. And that's a sobering, that's a sobering thing to think about. So all these, all these people that are dropping off now, it's like, there's fewer, there's just fewer people to show up to these events. It doesn't, uh, it's, it's, it, and, it, and that reminder comes at you pretty hard. It comes at you pretty hard. Like, ah. And then there were four, and then there were three, you know, like, I don't know, now, now you're in, you're, you're in a whole other realm now. Strange. It's like, am I the last? And is this it? Is this what happens? Is this? Is this what? Is this what it all boils down to? I don't know. There's no. There's no anecdotal. Tidy little. Tidy little ending. You know, it's very much like. Um, I don't know. It's quite the opposite of say like. I don't know, I was going to talk, I was going to, I was going to touch on, like, I was going to touch on a lot of, like, um, these great songs that were, that were kind of better on the, better as they got older, better as they got, better as they played on, better as they, the second half was better. Like, I was talking about Layla last time. You know, Layla got me on my knees, Layla. Like, what a dumb song. But the best, the really good portion of that is the second half. You know, dun, 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 you know that whole thing that's the best part the second half the second half you know or you take a couple of, you take a couple of uh, I've been listening to a lot of I made this British playlist and they've got some really uh, got some not obscure but like some old stones you know Monkey Man what a great song it's about heroin but <laughs> still been, but um, what was the other oh can you hear me knocking can you hear me knocking that's about a cocaine deal but it's like an almost an eight minute song and the first three minutes are the lyric portion the second half is longer than the first half and the second half is all instrumental. It's all the, you know, the, uh, 
it's just the it's all instruments it's it's fucking, it's actually the best part it, it it puts you in that i don't know they, they had a, that song had a knack of kind of placing you in some late 70s mindset where you're looking for cocaine on the streets of new york the second half of that was in my opinion i thought it was the just an odd song but the best part is the second half which is twice as long as the first half um you know just like Layla I'll I'll die on the hill of knowledge that the instrumental is longer and better than the lyrical portion that's it but in life it doesn't work it ain't that way it's not that way <laughs> The only thing, I don't know, you know, the only exception to, that I've come across to that is like, uh, I went out, I went out yesterday, I'm finally, I'm getting up to speed now, I, I went out and I did like about eight and a half miles out on the, <clears throat> out on the trails there along the little creek here, runs through the side of Old Town, I went out and I just, I said, uh, said to my lady, I'll be back, I'll either be back in an hour or five days, I can't, I don't know. And uh, I'd been building up, building up. Friday, I did barely any. But Saturday, I knocked out about three and a half miles. Sunday, I just was gone. I was out the door, out. Because I got to build up my stamina, you know. So I ended up doing about uh, 20,000 steps. Nobody cares. I know that. You know, people... People that post their little, what is that, Strava, Stavra, or whatever those little, those little Fitbit things that show you the path. The, they show you their entire path. They should just, they should just say nobody cares. Like that, 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 that little path should just spell out across the map that they're showing you on their Instagram posts. That nobody cares. Nobody gives a fuck how far you went. But I managed to do twenty, almost twenty thousand steps, man, and 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 I did it without water. I did it unaided, unaided, what? And but, but back in the day, that would have been a, that would have been a routine. A little, I would have knocked that out in an hour. But I still was able to. F- mm, I don't know. It hit me a little hard. It hit me a little hard, but I gotta, I gotta get up to speed. I got to get up to speed because I'm gonna be doing. Uh, I'm gonna be doing probably a 19, 20 foot, 20 mile section at a time at a clip. Up in, uh, out in Catalina on the Channel Islands, I'll be stuck on an island, you know. My daughter's coming out, the end of March. We're gonna go. We are gonna hit it. So I gotta get up to speed, but. But like I said, the second half of life is like uh, is not like a is not like a Rolling Stones song typically. But I'm trying, trying to stretch it. I'm trying to stretch it out. I'm trying to be that. I'm trying to be Emma Gatewood, 67, 67. First time she hit the Appalachian Trail. I don't know why I keep coming back to her, but I think you know her. That's that was her. Um, that was kind of her rebirth, you know, in a, in a way, because she ended up doing the trail like three times, and she did like, and then she did one of the, was it the, she did, did she do the Colorado Trail? She did one other trail on top of that. 
for the first time she ever even attempted it was it's 67 how do you i mean i'm so i'm out there huffing it i'm i'm pushing it and i'm in a groove i mean i think my right foot's bigger than my left foot i think my right foot's still growing so kind of was fighting some blisters some toenails digging in but fuck it you know just powered through eight and a half about eight and a half miles so i can't i can't get too excited because uh i'm gonna have to double that i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to expand on that but but typically, yeah, your second half is not, uh, your second half is usually your swan song. Your, that's your coup de, yeah, that's the end. That's the, that's, uh, that's where you start circling the drain, right? So I'm going to do everything I can. I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it, man. I'm fighting it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this, this second half, the, the more interesting half. I'm trying to reverse, reverse the aging process, right? So, but that's uh, that's all I got for you today. It's, I was going to talk about how the, I was going to talk about the time I was a squatter. I'll save that for, I'll save that for next episode. I think you might find that. I don't know, a little more interesting than this is just talking about death and circling the drain. Second half of life. Just fighting off, circling the drain. Just got to keep going. Just keep going. I'm going to, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and make it to the point where eventually there'll be a, uh, I don't know, do I want to, do I want to go into my 90s? I mean, Am I really? This is mid. This is middle. This is this is midlife. I've still got another fifty to go. I'm only halfway. Man, I'm tired. <laughs> anyway, that's the show for today, boys and girls. Hope you enjoyed it. Talk about death. Talking about the inevitable. The inevitable. My lady's out on her new job. She's she's picking up she's rounding up the she's rounding up these bodies. It's getting real now. And uh so death is all around us folks. Can't escape it. You can't escape it. Starting to hear more more of these tribute podcasts. More people that are Knocking off this, who's gonna be, who who's who's gonna be there at the end? I don't know, I don't know. Until then, though, I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies. <laughs>